Video recordings of this podcast can be found on RaisingEquity.org and Raising Equity on YouTube. Welcome to Raising Equity. Hopefully you've been following our series on podcasting amidst the pandemic. We've been talking about different people's perspective on how the pandemic is impacting them. And today we are lucky enough that Dr. Lori Punch was able to take some time out of her busy schedule to talk to us about her role, not only as an associate professor at the Washington University School of Medicine, but also the founder of Power for STL, which is a nonprofit focused on reducing the impact of violence in the St. Louis region. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Punch. I, I, I want to start with just asking how you're doing, like personally, how are you, how are you doing amidst everything? So it's, um, it's, it's, it's been a privilege, a true privilege uh, to slow down some during this pandemic. I've been able to spend more time at home with my son and more time with family. Uh, I've been able to focus in on my health. I've been doing a vegan raw detox for the last two weeks. And uh, it's actually been, in some ways, a luxury. And I fully admit that's a reflection of the privilege that I live in. At the same time, it's been a sort of unreal um, realization of some of what I care about and worry about the most in our region, that they're vulnerable among us are simply not living at a life and a life standard that allows them to enjoy health and well-being. And this virus is really showing us the depth of how true that is. Yeah. And that's something that you see firsthand, right? I mean, you're working. How is your schedule going? Your time at home versus your time in the hospital? So I, it was interesting. I was in a very significant change in my career focusing less on my career as a trauma surgeon at being operating on people and more focusing on my work in community engagement and education, both of students and the community itself. And uh, as I was in the midst of this transition, the pandemic struck and I'm also an intensive care doctor. And so um, as we were rearranging our forces and thinking about where we would need help, um, I rose my hand to become part of the staff at Christian Northeast Hospital, which is actually a hospital. A lot of people don't know this, but it's staffed by many WashU physicians. And so I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. I've spent some time in the intensive care unit at Christian Northeast Hospital. And then I've been spending an enormous amount of time working with my building and the folks that prepare STL to get messaging, equipment, uh, PPE gear out to the community. Hmm. So you've been working now in, in two parts of the city. So, right. One hospital is more kind of in the central part of the city, central Weston actually. Right. And other in the North side of the city, what's it been like seeing COVID from both of those perspectives? Well, I, I live in Ferguson, and Christian Northeast is a hospital I've been actually wanting to become more knowledgeable about, participate in, and so it's actually been awesome to be there. I love the vibe. I love the people. They are working hard. The nurses and the respiratory therapists on the front lines there are just incredible, as well as all the support staff, you know, food service and custodians. I mean, it is an amazing hospital. I've gotten to know uh, Rick Stevens a little bit. Uh, he's the president of that hospital, and um, the mission there is very community-minded, which fits with my focus. So actually, it's been awesome to, to spend some time at Christian. You know, the uh, 
Barnes Jewish Hospital, also known as Big Barnes, <laughs> to folks in the BJC system, um, is also an incredible place because there I've had access to really world-class academics in the world of infectious disease and epidemiology who have been helping me understand what's going on right now. So to have both a very, a, a very, very sound boots on the ground footing in the community, but then also getting this incredible knowledge and education from this institution. It's been, it's been really neat to, to be in both places. Obviously, Barnes Jewish Hospital is now getting much busier in terms of the COVID experience, but Christian Hospital was the hospital that had the most COVID patients when it first hit the region. I didn't know that. Yes, there were many, many patients that came in the first week uh, uh, that we really started seeing more cases come in. And uh, it was uh, an incredible transition for the hospital. But the, the crew stood up and, and they handled it and they did the work. But now we're seeing more of the cases going to Barnes Jewish Hospital. It's evening out a bit more now. So do you think the the pattern of of more of the cases happening north of the city, like now that we have, because it's lagged data, the data that we're seeing is after the fact, right? Um, is it, do you think the reason why you were seeing more cases there was because there, we were having more community spread, but we just, we, we didn't know it yet? I mean, what do you think, because that pattern kind of fits the fact when you look at the, the data, we see a lot more cases in some of those Northern counties than we are seeing in the city, right? Yeah. Uh, it's the numbers that I had most recently that for every 1.5 people in North St. Louis, there was 0.5 people in, you know, the Southern Western part of St. Louis. So below Del Mar. And uh, that if you were African American in the city overall, you're 2.5 times the likelihood of getting COVID and four times the likelihood of ending up on a ventilator or critically ill in the ICU. So, that 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 disparity follows the segregation of the region and the segregation is not simply race race is just kind of the sorting that we do amongst each other i don't even have to start to talk to you about race and what it is and what it isn't but the the segregation is not just segregation it's concentration concentration of poverty the inability to do physical distancing, the employment and essential jobs that still had people going to dialysis units and nursing homes where a number of cases came from. Those are the factors. You know, I'm going to say it this way, though. Nobody sits and shakes their head and says, why are 95% of the homicides in St. Louis black folks? So why right. are you surprised when another socially spread disease that takes advantage of vulnerabilities and pre-existing conditions is occurring disproportionately in our region. And the thing that I've been pushing, that's a really good point, is that it's not about race. It's about racism. And just like you said, it's not about race. It's about the concentration that we have created of, around poverty, the, the, the concentration where, that doesn't allow for the social distancing, the concentration of lack of opportunity so that a higher percentage of Black folks are essential workers are serving as our bus drivers, our janitorial staff. And so that it really is, we think we're seeing race when really we're seeing the effects of racism. Yeah. Yeah. I was really moved when I was at Christian hospital the first day I was there looking and seeing the COVID unit and seeing the other patients who were COVID positive and all of all the ones who were critically ill, nearly every single one of them was black. And I had just never 
walked through an ICU like that before where patient after patient behind closed door in isolation hooked to a ventilator was black. It was, I mean, it was just, it was surreal. And, and I, and it was very soon after that, literally the, like, I think two days later, Dr. Fauci went on nationally and acknowledged the disparities which were arising. I want to talk a little bit about those disparities, but before we do, I just am struck by, like, when you said that, I was thinking about what that would feel like. And I, I, I can't imagine, um, and I'm wondering how you take care of yourself as you go between, like you said, the privilege that you have to spend more time with your family and to do this raw vegan diet, and then to walk by so many people on ventilators, and then to have them disproportionately be black and brown folks. Well, see, you have to remember my day job. It, uh, this is the life I've come to know as a trauma surgeon in St. Louis and previously in Baltimore. So you're used I actually to it. feel better prepared to handle this than most because I'm used to seeing a slow, horrifying epidemic killing black bodies every day. Like that's violence. That's bullets. And I see it all the time. Now it's just a virus instead of a bullet. It was overwhelming to see so many all at once. I think that's what's made coronavirus. It's like a mass shooting, right? It's like all of these people getting hit, hit bullets, just flying. I, I made an analogy that if, <laughs> The virus is the new bullet that makes your hand shake a gun and your sneeze a semi-automatic. Just everywhere. So one person's actions impacting many. But still, how do you deal with it? You know, I, um, I have uh, not always been able to achieve the self-care that I wanted when it come, came to my physical health my spiritual well-being, and my emotional uh, resilience. And I am not kidding when I say I am actually enjoying the reduction in the chatter in life right now because it's really helping me focus, take a breath, and do what I need to do. I, I believe that there are a number of things you can do to be well in the midst of ongoing unremitting trauma, including being super careful what you eat, tending to your sleep, being cautious of how you manage your own physical pain, expressing your stress rather than letting it fester and avoiding toxins, including toxic people. So, <laughs> so wait, does that mean that, does that mean we're not supposed to drink? Uh, well, you don't drink too much. Uh, oh, toxins okay. can get into a real twisted situation when you're under trauma. So it's interesting because these five steps I just described are, is my how to heal program for trauma recovery that I uh, teach uh, when it comes to the issue of dealing with violence. But I'm using those things, even myself, uh, as I think about, and I'm actually really looking forward to sharing that more because I think our whole region is going to have to, our whole country, our world is going to have to find a way to recover from the trauma that is COVID. Yeah. Yes, we are. We're going to have to find a way to recover. And uh, one of our our recent guest in Kim and Defo has this framework she calls the resilience toolkit. And she talks about uh, that when we're in trauma, right, it's hard to it's hard to do much of anything. And that it's really important for us to be um, to be kind to ourselves to be able to recognize that, you know, in this moment, this this reaction, whatever it is might be useful, and might not serve me, but to be able to be adaptable in the moment and to not be so hard on ourselves, like, oh, I should be doing this or I shouldn't be doing that. 
And I imagine, how long have you been a trauma surgeon? How long have you been doing this work? Yeah. So, I mean, if you put my whole medical career together, it's two decades. And um, so you've had a lot of practice. Yeah. When I honestly, I I have such compassion when I see residents and uh, newly found founded ICU doctors, like people who used in New York, who used to do one practice of medicine and now they're in an ICU and they're just horrified of the, of the suffering and the death that they're seeing. And I just like, wish I could go hug them because I'm like, we have been there. We have seen this and uh, we, we hear you, we feel you. Um, But that's even why I've been even more inspired to go out into community and say, let's not make this be the way this story goes for us. Let's see what we can do to reduce the harm, prevent the infection and, and, and be well as a region. Yes. So, so getting to that, right. This fact that, the the disparities that we're seeing that COVID has laid bare are not a surprise to those of us who understand systemic oppression and understand social determinants of health. What's your take on on what we're seeing in terms of the pattern of data? So I think the most alarming thing, and definitely seeing this firsthand, is how sick people get once they get COVID. We know that coronavirus is now part of the human experience. It is going to be, it's on our planet. It's in our communities. It is here in our immune system as human beings does not have a way to fight it. Right. So it is here. Um, And what I find so dramatic is the way for one person, one person can be walking around and not know they have it at all, literally be symptom free. And another person dies just intensely, quickly, dramatically. And dies not just with a lung infection, but dies with every single organ in their body, their central nervous system, their heart, their liver, their kidneys, everything impacted. So, so what I, I'm trying to say, how does a virus let one person walk around and chill and another person fighting is fighting for their life every second with numerous nurses and therapists around them trying to keep them alive. Like how is there such a wild disparity in how the virus acts once you have it? Why is COVID mild, moderate, and severe in people? And I I think things like how you eat are so important. Food is medicine. And the simple fact that a heavily, heavily, processed food, heavily animal-based diet that, that perpetuates malnutrition that presents as obesity, that that, that single reality fundamentally change, changes the experience of COVID. That diabetes and all the ways that it affects the small blood vessels that keep your organs healthy changes dramatically, like tenfold the difference in what COVID does in a body. That that is amazing to me, but, but at the same time, how simple it is. It is about how you sleep, how you eat, the air you breathe. It's not this super, super complicated thing. And it's like, why is it? Why is it that black folks in the United States and in St. Louis simply don't have access to those easy, superficial, like basic things? And I really think it goes back to the economic and structural realities of slavery in that black bodies simply have never come with the same value in this country as others. And you just are seeing it come to life 
in blazing, blazing glory. And, and, and I wish it was as simple now as to simply say, oh, just eat better, lose a few pounds, everyone will be fine. But it's so deep. It's so, it's so driven into our streets, our, our zip codes, our, our, our culture and our ways. It's going to take so much to reverse this reality. And you, you speak very clearly about the impact of racism, that decades of discrimination research has found a link between experiencing discrimination, which is the behavioral manifestation of an, 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 of an ism. It's linked to poor sleep, poor yeah. health outcomes, diabetes, hypertension. We, it, it's, it's correlated with space, your neighborhood. It, so everything you just mentioned is correlated with the experience of racism. And I, I think it's so important for us to remember that it's correlated with the experience of racism, which has disproportionately impacted Black folks who were enslaved here, rather than simply saying it's correlated with race. Because that's like reifying race, meaning like that there's something in us as Black folks that makes us... And it's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> no. And I wonder in the medical field... I mean, I, I taught some medical students in their first year of med school. Like they, they, they thought that some of those medical myths about black people, that we had an extra muscle in our thigh, that we didn't feel as much pain, right? Like I, I imagine a lot of those myths are driving some people's ideas about why black people are more susceptible. Mm -hmm. or, or just judgments uh, in, in someone's character. Like you chose to weigh too much. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, you chose to, to act this way. You chose to not have a job and that's why you don't have a home. Like <laughs> Nobody chooses to live in a food desert. Nobody chooses yeah. that. No, no. And, and, and I think, I, I also think there's, there's a really, it's a really tough, sad part in here because when, when, when the medical community was starting to say, listen, this is serious, this is real. You need to stay at a distance. You need to keep your hands clean. You've got to do uh, these precautions. How did that fall on the ears of the black community? The, in other words, when it was time to trust, believe, listen, and know, how did the black community respond to the, the honestly horrifically confusing messages that the CDC, WHO, our leadership, meaning our political leadership was giving? You know, I was saying from the beginning, people need to be wearing masks. I do business with many people directly in China for my trauma first aid work and was getting information from them back in January. And they're like, we hope you're wearing masks. We hope you're doing this. And just because we didn't have enough masks or because we thought people wouldn't know how to wear them the right way, we're telling people to not. I mean, that's horrible. So if you have this dysfunctional communication and then you have this historic distrust and a reason to not feel like this is a message that's reputable and worth acting on, then you, you lose the, when, when the sky really is falling, right? People won't listen. And it's, 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 that is, as a physician, a truly heartbreaking thing. And I don't judge it because I, it's well-founded. The distrust is well-founded, but I just wish there was a clearer voice. That's why I'm doing as much as I can to make videos, to message, to get it out there, to say, listen, the same way, 
maybe y'all were hearing me on this topic. Hear me on this one. This is real, y'all. And we have to stop the virus. Yeah, I've enjoyed your hand washing and (laughs) scrub like a surgeon videos. (laughs) But you're right, the messaging, the messaging needs to be tailored in some way because there is such a real history of medical mistrust. Um, Medical Apartheid is a book that folks should check out if they aren't familiar with some of that history of medical mistrust. Most people know about the Tuskegee experiment, but Medical Apartheid goes into the history more deeply. But even present day, I was just reading, I think it was a Brookings Institute report talking about collecting a lot of um, data, not only around some of the de- social determinants of health we just talked about, but the um, empathy gap that they that they see in, mm-hmm. in physician-patient care and some of the assumptions that are made around pain. And then um, I was even reading something around uh, bias and who gets ventilators and who doesn't. Yep. Yep. Big deal. And, you know, uh, that I uh, recently wrote a piece with... Um, an ethicist from WashU talking about the ways in which even when you try to take bias out by using objective measurements for ventilator allocation and, and issues like this, even those objective measurements have bias within them. For instance, the way kidney function is measured and the way it, it, it disproportionately uh, actually will make it look like uh, black African-American folks have worse, worse kidney function, even though it's a, it's a, this messed up, calculation in the way the the kidney clears proteins it's 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 (laughs) don't get me started (laughs) well i think can't even get free of our bias when we name it we can't well and so there's a lot of research in social psych that would say that you to to claim to be unbiased when like you said it's baked into how we do things actually can make us more biased so we see it in different fields so social psych would tell us that yeah we can't we, we can't claim to not see it because we see it. Uh, Supreme Court black men, I think it was the Bakke decision, said we can't not take account of race until we take account of race. So there are all these examples in different fields that remind us that like as much as we'd wish that we could just be like, okay, 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 <laughs> we just won't be biased, that, it, that there's so many ways in which it's baked into, like in psychology, the assessments that we do of people, the cognitive assessments, the intelligence assessments that we use. And so I think the work of Generate Health here in St. Louis is a good example. Um, after the Ferguson Commission, Rebecca Bennett, who is an amazing, amazing force, um, was leading, on the- Leading Prepare STL. Yes, yes she, she is. is. <laughs> she was chair of the board of Generate Health, and they started to do the work of thinking about, hey, you know, what if rather than say- we're, we want to not have bias because we know that in the St. Louis region, black babies are three times more likely to die by their first ba- for the, by their first birthday. Rather than saying, oh, we wish we didn't have this bias, let's help all babies. What if we got really clear about where our disparity was and we focused, we focused on making sure that black babies live to see their first birthday? Maybe we could improve outcomes for all babies. And, and so, so when you talk about this bias that's baked into the medical profession and and it requires it's going to require physicians to have the tough conversation. So rather than just say, "Oh, I don't I don't see race when I see this patient." Well, I, no, like you do. <laughs> and so how is it shaping the assumptions you make about them, the care that you give them, whether they get put on the ventilator or not? And those are tough conversations. And I don't know about you, but from the medical schools that I've worked with, those conversations don't always happen. No, they don't. And um the problem is it just gets stuck at this very sort of practical, but they're not going to do as well. 
but they don't have this, but they don't have that. And, and, and it doesn't, it, it's this minute to minute sort of decision-making that never gets a chance to step back and say, but why? Um, you know, I think the thing, people are very worried about the surge with coronavirus. We're thinking we're going to surge in the next seven to 10 days in St. Louis. Missouri was set to surge last, uh, peak the last in the, the country because of where we are physically. We're like literally in the middle. Um, but it's going to happen a little sooner than that. And, and I think there's this false perception that after the, after the surge, then that's it. But, but it's here. I mean, in every, every estimate that I can put together from all the information I have is that our world has totally changed. I think it's going to be two years uh, with the virus uh, because the human race has got to learn with, live to learn, learn to live with coronavirus. The day-to-day decisions, though, that get made once the peak and the surge have gone and we're just living with this virus, right, are still very much likely to disadvantage older black folks and black folks with comorbidities like diabetes. And that is something we must remain conscious of. This is why I think I'm trying to get in front of an education platform to help people understand what the virus is, what their risks are for it, and how they can protect themselves. How can people find out about that platform? So uh, again, right now I'm working with Prepare STL, www.preparestl.com. And we're going to be switching over the platform where I do the work around violence, which is on the T's website, which is uh, www.thestl.com. So T-H-E-T-S-T-L.com, uh, where we're going to be highlighting not just violence and bullet, from bullets, but we're going to be talking about opiate use and uh, substance use disorder, as well as the virus, because all of those things or uh, issues in our lives that are taking the lives of black folks disproportionately. So that's where we're gonna be having, I'm gonna be putting all my videos, all my content and education in one spot where you can pick which one of those pathways, whether it's a bullet, a needle, or a sneeze. <laughs> I want you to have access to information. That's wonderful. I mean, I, I, I think we first met when we were on a panel together at Washington University. And yeah, I, I think remember- we were talking about policing. Yes. And I remember thinking, oh, this is a physician I could, I could really, I could connect with. <laughs> Not that there are others that I couldn't. My dad, anyway. <laughs> I know lots of physicians I like. Oh, um, my mother but... loves to tell me how much she does not like doctors. So, <laughs> <laughs> <I get it. laughs> Sorry, dad. Uh, but I remember just thinking, oh, clearly you have a public health framework and how you see things. And so I was excited to hear when you opened the tea, tell folks about it and what led you to take your ideas and thoughts and put them in an actual brick and mortar place in St. Louis. Yeah, so I started Power for STL with a medical student and surgery resident, Jane Hayes and Aaron Andrade, in March of 2018, after working for a year to try to get the National Stop the Bleed campaign uh, locally planted into the community, into people who were dealing with day-to-day impact of violence. We had some very, very specific work that we wanted to do, and after we did it in early 2018, we realized, whoa, wait a minute, this isn't just for the folks that we're trying to reach out to, which included juvenile detention centers and community outreach workers, but in fact, it included folks uh, everywhere. It was relevant to everybody. So as we built that campaign a year later, we're like, wow, we're busting at the seams. I got stuff in my office, stuff in my home. We were, we're always renting places. Like, let, let's try to get a brick and mortar place. And 
uh, we decided Delmar made the most sense. Uh, we're uh, in the East Loop, and it's people think of it as the dividing line. We we view it as the joining center where everyone comes together, and so um, it has been incredible because now instead of just working on the Stop the Bleed campaign, uh, we have launched into a whole realm of work which goes around this principal idea that when a public health problem or challenge is saturated in any given environment, harm reduction becomes primary prevention. In other words, if you say this event is going to touch your life, we know it, it's going to touch your life in some way, let's give you the tools and the resources to use your power to sustain and then as we confer that value in your life that we know you have and we're, we're helping you realize that you might actually be part of preventing the thing from happening in the first place. So we started saying, not just, did you, do you know how to save someone's life? We started saying, did you know that your life was worth saving? And that message of like, we're here for you because you're the one and what do you need and how can we be present has really blended beautifully into the work that's being done in the region around harm reduction for opiate use. I've been working with Chad Zabora and the Missouri Net and trying to bring some of that incredible work that he's done on the south side to the north city. And then again, having done all that work, it was super easy to see how the virus, another social public health disease process, would do well with that same approach. So we have developed Given that Dr. Punch is so busy, it makes sense that they would have a change of venue in the middle of our interview. So for those of you who are just listening, you'll hear a different quality of sound because Dr. Punch is now in the T and in the T, everyone wears PPE to protect everyone who comes in. So I'm in the T now, so I'm wearing a mask. We've kind of tried to make the T a sacred space while COVID is here and present. We're putting together personal protective gear in this space. And so the rule is hand hygiene in, hand hygiene out, mask in, mask out, trying to treat it like the whole space is 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 safe. And so that's that's why I have this mask on. There's actually nobody in here, but I'm just being super neurotic. <laughs> yeah. Well, like you said, pe- some people can be walking around asymptomatic and still be right. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And people were in here within the last three hours, aerosolized. Uh, COVID can stay alive in the air for three hours. And so three hours, three hours. Hmm. Yeah. It's, I've been trying to keep up on, on the research, but I have not been able to. So that's good to hear. Yeah. Well, that's why a sneeze is just such an unbelievable thing. One person sneezes. That's, that's if you look at some of the patterns of spread in churches, uh, if one person has it in a congregation and sneezes, and there's a hundred people in the church. There's 500 people in the church. There's a thousand people in the church. Did you, do you know about patient 31? No. It's a fascinating story. Uh, South Korea was on paid track with China in terms of flattening the curve when COVID first came into that country. And um, they were doing all the things, social distancing and masks and hygiene and uh, really, really doing a really good job. Then the 31st patient to get COVID uh, went through this really bizarre chain of events in which she got a little bit sick, got in a car accident, went to a hospital, left the hospital to go to church, came back to the hospital, 
was discharged, came to a clinic, went to church again. And it was basically this nine day series of events that caused her to be the, the, the patient that, that then resulted in 2,300 more people getting the virus. I do remember reading that. Yeah. Over 80% of the cases in South Korea around, you know, around the time that story came out were from her. It's oh. just unbelievable. Not her fault, but just like, it's just how powerful, that, how big a deal it is when large groups of people get together and one person is symptomatic. It's incredible how many people can get sick. Well, and that makes, that makes sense. I remember reading that and thinking, oh, was she being negligent? But like you said, people are presenting different ways. And so she didn't know. But, and like the choir in Washington state, before all the, all the social distancing requirements were in place, they had a rehearsal and mm. the majority of the choir, because you can, even if you're not sneezing, you're, yeah. you're breathing, you're singing, singing it, you're, you're close. Yeah. You're enunciating. So you're expelling and yeah, a large number of the folks ended up sick and a number of them died. Mm. And this was, like I said, before we, it was on our radar, uh, in the country. Gosh. Yeah. yeah. Anything else you want to tell us about the tea, about the space? How can folks support the space and the great work that y'all are doing? Yeah. So the tea again is a building on Del Mar and we are still open. We are now helping prepare STL and numerous other organizations get access to personal protective equipment, mostly masks, but a whole lot of other gear as well. Um, and so that's how we're continuing our mission forward. We um, actually do have a mechanism for accepting donations now through the uh, integrated health network that has come on board to help us uh, being a fiscal agent. We weren't a 501c3 yet. We had been working on it. We're relatively new uh, a nonprofit. And so uh, they have taken on uh, that us uh, under that as well as uh, the, the prepare STL donating to them is a great way to, to, to support the stop the virus work that we're doing. We are trying to reach nursing homes, visiting nurses, uh, early childhood providers, anybody who's taking care of somebody who's vulnerable, uh, people who are unhoused, uh, people who are in dense populated areas. We're trying to get education and material support out to all those folks as much as possible. We also want to try and support those who are in the health professions, even in hospital settings who might not have official support, like those who are custodians or support staff. So we're just trying to keep rolling with this idea that with the hand hygiene and personal protective equipment and knowledge, you have the power to reduce the likelihood of getting seriously ill from COVID. One other thing about COVID, it's not just a you have it or you don't. We're learning from experiences across the world that it matters how much COVID you have. So the viral load, how much you're getting exposed to can make an impact in how sick you get. And so it really, really does matter to do the physical distancing, to not be in close proximity for people for long periods of time, and uh, to be very conscious of the contacts you have. Eventually, the quarantine time will end, and uh, we're going to have to be, we are going to have to be as conscious and careful then as we have been now. And I really, really want people to know that it's not that they don't have any ability to control whether or not they get this infection, but that through, uh, you know, appropriate measures, we can help make it so they can stop the virus. 
Thank you. I appreciate all the work you're doing, not just as a physician who is literally on the front lines in, in the sense, but like the work you're doing in the community, the willingness to partner with other organizations in the community and think about how do we get PPE to people who are in densely populated areas, right? Like that as a physician, that's something that you don't have to have to focus on. You've got plenty enough to focus on when you go into work. And yet your engaged work in the community, it matters and it makes a difference. Well, you know, you had asked me earlier, like, why, why would I do the violence work I do? What made me get into it? And, you know, I went to medical school with a desire to make it so people could suffer less. And I was conscious at a young age that our social ills, the way that we know and treat each other was far more an impact on our health than anything else. And so surgery is what I do because it's what I have the aptitude to do, but my heart is for people and their ability to love one another. And so that's what this is about. I think when disease, violence, and, and terror comes upon us, that trauma separates us from each other. And we can reverse the impact of that trauma and become connected again. And that's what it's all about for me. Some people ask me, what does this T mean? And the simplest way to say it is no more trauma. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And it's evident. It shows. And Dr. Punch, I appreciate you for giving of your time because I know I know you've got plenty to do. <laughs> I do. Well, thank you so much and you be well. You too. You too. Thanks, Punch. All right. And thank you for joining us. Hopefully you have been enjoying as much as we can enjoy being in a pandemic, this podcast series that has looked at the coronavirus from multiple perspectives. We want to try to get voices that need to be heard and share ideas that can help all of us manage our way through. So if you have ideas about who we should talk to, you can find us on Instagram at Dr. Kira Banks or Facebook at Dr. Kira Banks. Hopefully you learned something from Dr. Punch. I know I sure did, thinking about the parallels between gun violence and COVID. And come back and join us as we podcast amidst the pandemic. Thanks for joining us on Raising Equity. Raising Equity.